Hello, and welcome back to the Book Club Commune. Uh, with me, Ivy Poesy. I need to make a quick correction before we get further. At the end of the last episode, I did say that we'd be reading Chapter 8 today, which is Self-Determination, The Fight for a Correct Line. That was incorrect. We were actually reading Chapter 7 at the Lennon School today. I've now gone back and that's been fixed, but if you previously heard that, then, you know, whoops, my bad. But that's fixed now, and we are going to be reading Chapter 7 today. So, sit down, strap in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Chapter 7, The Lenin School Following my summer in Crimea, I returned to Moscow in the fall of 1927 to attend the Lenin School. The school was located off the, the Arbat, which was now called Ambassador's Row, a few blocks down the inner ring of boulevards from the Kutva dormitories. The Lenin School, which was set up by the Comintern, opened up in Moscow in May 1926. The plans for the school, formerly called the International Lenin Course, had been reported on the previous year by Bella Kuhn, then head of the Educational Agitprop Department of the Comintern. Accordingly, the school was to train 60 to 70 qualified students, both in theoretical and practical subjects which included observations of the Soviet trade unions and collective farm work. It offered a full three-year course and a short course of one year. It was, a school, it was a school of great prestige and influence within the international communist movement. Its students, mainly party functionaries of district and section levels, and some secondary national leaders who could be spared for, for, a year, for the period of study were generally at a higher level of political development than the students at Kutva. I was the first black to be assigned to the school. Others followed later, including H.V. Phillips in 1928, Leonard Patterson in the 30s, and Azula, a Zulu intellectual and national secretary of the South African Communist Party. The American students who entered the Lenin School in the fall of 1927 were an impressive lot. They included prominent party leaders from the national and district level, outstanding in the group was Charles Crumbine, a member of the Central Committee of the party and formerly in charge of the trade union work in Chicago and district organizer for Chicago. A steam fitter by trade and a charter member of the party, he was one of, the, one of a group of young trade unionists who made up the Chicago party leadership in the 20s. They were, best represented, rep, they were the best representatives of the radical tradition of the city's labor movement. Modesty and honesty were hallmarks of Charlie's character, and he was a man of exceptional organizational and administrative abilities. He was founder of the Trade Union Education League, TUEL, and played a, role, a key role in the Chicago Federation of Labor. We developed a close and lasting friendship, and I learned a lot from, from him about the party history and the background of the revolutionary movement of the United States. Margaret Cowell, Charlie's wife, was a capable party leader and an organizer. She had worked in the TUEL and was re recognized particularly for her leadership in the struggle for unity of Pennsylvania's anthracite coal miners in 1927. Later, she was to head up the party's Women Commission and played an active role in the movement for a woman's charter. A broad united front, United Front movement launched in 1936, which asserted the rights of women to fully, full equality in all spheres of activity. Margaret also energetically mobilized support for the struggles of women 
wage workers in the trade, needle trades, textiles, electrical, and other industries. Joseph Zack had first immigrated to the U.S. from Eastern Europe shortly after the First World War. Active in the first communist organization in New York, he had been he had been section organizer of Yorktown and had and served on the party's trade union commission. Zack was one of Foster's leading trade union cadres in New York, and had also been one of the first New York party members assigned to work among blacks. He was a bitter enemy of Lovestone, but was also critical of Foster. In 1932, he was expelled from the party for refusing to abide by democratic centralism, and by, and by the 40s to become an informant for, for the Dyes Committee and on, on American propaganda activities. Morris Childs, a Chicagoan, was a leader in the trade union and party work. He became in the Illinois DO in the 30s, at the same time that I was chairman of the Cook County Committee and secretary of the South Side region. While at the Lennon School, he served as a representative of the American students to the school bureau. Rudy Baker, a Yugoslav comrade who later became DO in Pittsburgh and in Detroit, and Lena Davis, Shearer, a good friend of mine who was, an or- who was organizational secretary for New York in the 30s, were also at the school. All of these students were members of the Foster Group. As far as I recall, the sole Lovestone supporter in our group was Gus Glar of Chicago a leader in the Russian Federation. Poor Gus was all alone in the midst of Fosterites, and it must have been an unhappy experience for him. When Lovestone was expelled from the party in 1929, Gus remained in the Soviet Union and never returned to the U.S. He served as an officer in the Red Army and was killed in defense of Moscow during the Second World War. The American students at the Lenin School were all experienced leaders of the U.S. party. One might ask why so many were spared from U.S. work at the time when the party's position among the masses was so weak. Actually, these students were the victims of Lovestone's purge of the party apparatus following his victory at the Fifth Party Convention of 1927. Part of Lovestone's strategy was to weaken the opposition on the home front by exiling some of the leaders to the Lenin School. His plan backfired, however, in Moscow, these exiles, as they jokingly called themselves, were to become an executive lobby against Lovestone, both in the Comintern and in the CPSU. The political winds were changing. From the ashes of the defeat of, Trots- of the Trotskyite left rose the equally dangerous, organized, and secret rightist opposition, headed by none other than Lovestone's patron in the Comintern, Nikolai Bukharin. On the home front, this rightist opposition had its social base among the capitalists, the landlords, and the kulaks, upper peasantry, and pushed a line that would have lopsidedly developed industry along consumer lines to the detriment of the vast masses of Soviet people. Internationally, Bukharin greatly underestimated the war damage and the potential revolutionary situation then developing on a world scale. At the same time, he greatly overestimated the strength and resiliency of imperialism. The Latin school students helped legitimize the anti-Lovestone struggle in the U.S. party by linking it to the fight against the right deviation, then only in its incipient stage. The Lenin School was to become a strong point in the fight against this danger. There are several other American students who had entered the Lenin School the year before. This group included Clarence Hathaway, Tom Bell, Max Salzman, and Carl Reeves, son of Mother Bloor. Son of Mother Bloor. Of this group, Hathaway had been the most imposing credentials. 
A machinist from Minneapolis and one of the leading people in the Trade Union Education League, Hathaway proved to be a valuable asset in the party's trade union work. He was a fine organizer and a speaker, particularly good in debates, and combined these talents with a good grasp of Marxist-Leninist theory. Clearly destined for top leadership in the party, he later served as a DO of the New York District and became an editor of the Daily Worker and a member of the Political Bureau. Tom Bell, Hathaway's close friend, remained in the Soviet Union, married a Russian woman, and died sometime before World War II. William Cruz of Chicago was the principal love stoneite in the school. For a brief period, he filled in as acting rep of the party to the Comintern in the absence of a permanent party rep. Later, he was DO in Chicago under Lovestone's leadership and was expelled from the party with Lovestone in 1929. The students were organizing at the school by language groups, as we had been in Kutva. In this case, the languages were English, German, French, Spanish, Italian, Russian, and later Chinese. The whole school was a collective, com- comprising students, teachers, administrators, and employees. The leading body was the polit- party bureau, which included delegates from all various groups, including employees. Students transferred membership from their home party to the CPUSU and were directly subject to its discipline. Party meetings were held about once a month. Our rector was a handsome, energetic woman named Karusanova. She was a leading communist educator and was married to the old Bolshevik propagandist and CE member E. Yaroslavsky. She was about 40 at the time and had an impressive background, including civil war experiences as a machine gunner and a detachment of Siberian partisans. Kursanova had also been a delegate to the Bolshevik conference in April 1917, which adopted Lenin's famous April Thesis. In addition to the Americans, others in the English-speaking section, including British, Irish, Australian, and a New Zealander, two Chinese, two Japanese, and two Canadians, Leslie Morris and Stuart Smith. The British group included Springhall, Tanner, Black, a Welshman, Margaret Pollitt, and George Brown. My special friend among the British was, was Springhall, known to all as Springy, whom I roamed with, whom with I roamed at the Lenin School. Springing was a British naval veteran of the First World War. He had come from a poor family, and his parents had chosen him for a naval career. This later act, it seemed, was a common practice among the British, lower-class families with several sons. At the age of 12, therefore, he had been given to His Majesty's Navy to be trained as a sailor. He served through the First World War, and after the armistice, was involved in a mutiny or near-mutiny among the members of the fleet who protested being sent to Leningrad to intervene against the Bolshevik Revolution. At the time, Springing was about 21 years old. As a result of the mutiny, he was cashiered from the Navy. Apparently, the Admiralty was deterred from taking taking any harsher measures against the mutineers because of the widespread sympathy for their action evoked among British workers. Springing was popular with everybody, particularly among the women on the technical staff. After leaving the Lenin School, he returned to England where he rose rapidly in party leadership. He fought in Spain as a member of the 14th International Brigade and was rooted in Harama. At the beginning of World War II, he served as an organizational secretary of the British Party. During the early stages of the war, Springing was charged by the Churchill government with subversive activity among the armed forces. This was during the period prior to German invasion of the Soviet Union when war was still an imperialist war, and we communists opposed it.
There was no defense against the charge of subversion in wartime England, and Springer was sentenced to seven years in prison. After his release, he went to China, where he did editorial work on English language publications until his death from cancer in 1953. Springer died in a Moscow hospital, where he had been sent by his Chinese comrades to make sure that everything possible could be done to save him. His ashes were returned to China and interred with a memorial stone in the Revolutionary Martyrs Cemetery outside Peking. Springy introduced me to the gifted English writers, historian and Marxist philosopher Ralph Fox. A promising young theorician, Fox was researching material for one of his books at the Marx-Engels Institute. He died at the age of 37, fighting fascists on the Cordova front during the Spanish Civil War. At the end of his brief lifespan, he had already published a tremendous body of work. I got a lot of my friendships. I got a lot out of my friendship with Fox. Profiting greatly from his wide-ranging knowledge, I often consulted with him on theoretical and political questions which arose during my stay at the school. Springy and I were frequent visitors at the apartment of Fox and his wife, Midge. It was there that I first met Karl Radek, a Polish expatriate. He had been an active leader of the Polish Social Democratic Party and a member of the Zimmerwald left, those internationalists who broke off from the Second International in 1915 and were instrumental in founding of the Third International. In 1915 and 16, Radek, along with Rosa Luxemburg, publicly disagreed with Lenin on the question of self-determination of nations. Radek later changed his view and was fully united with the Bolshevik position on the view in 1917. Radek was part of the group that returned with Lenin to Russia via Germany in the famous Sealed Coach. He was a member of the Bolshevik Central Committee and Politburo. At that time, but at the time that I had met him in 1928, Radek was still under a shadow politically. He had been a leading member of the Trotsky-Zinovev opposition and was expelled from the CPSU, along with other leaders of the bloc at the 16th Congress of the CPSU in December 1927. Exiles to the Ural, he publicly repudiated his early positions and was related to a party a few months later in 1928. He was assigned as editor of Izvestia, later became part of the Chief Foreign Affairs Commission, leading Soviet papers. He was also a member of the Soviet delegation at the Comintern. Radek, as I remember him, was a little man, appearing to be somewhat of a dandy, in his English tweed jacket, plus fours, and a cane. But to me, the most striking thing about him was his beard. It stretched from ear to ear under his chin and cheeks, giving him a simian look. His English, though accentuated, was fluent. When I first met him, he immediately engaged me in a conversation about the conditions of the blacks in the United States, which branched off into the questions of black literature, writers, and the Harlem Renaissance. To my amazement, it was clear he knew more about the subject than I did. I was a little embarrassed when I asked him when he asked my opinion about certain black writers with whom I, he was familiar, whom I had never read. I found out later that Claude McKay had been sort of a protege of Radek during the, the poet's stay in the Soviet Union. In 1937, along with the others in the Trotskyite left opposition, Radek was convicted of treason of acting as an agent of acting as an agency of German and Italian fascism and giving assistance to those who might invade the Soviet Union. He was sent to prison where he died in the 40s. Springy introduced me to, me to many other young Britons in Moscow, such men as William Rust, who later became editor of The British Worker, Walter Tapsell, editor of The Young Worker, and George Brown, 
Both Brown and Tapsell were in my brigade in the Spanish Civil War and were killed in battle. Brown and Brunette was well, Brown was killed at Brunet while I was there. Our English-speaking section at the Lenin School included five young Irishmen, all members of the Irish Workers League, a communist-oriented group organized organized by Big Jim Larkin in 1923. It seemed that the communist, Irish Communist Party, founded in 1921 by young Roderick Connolly, son of James Connolly, had collapsed. I was told that its failure was due to a lack of Marxist-Leninist theory and the inability of its members to relate their view on socialism to the specific conditions in Ireland. But there was certainly no lack of revolutionary enthusiasm and motivation among the young people I met at the Lenin School, some of whom had been members of the Irish Communist Party. The group had been sent to the Lenin School as a step forward, as a step towards rebuilding the Irish Party. All five were protégés of the famous Irish revolutionary Big Jim Larkin, most definitely a man of action and organization, not of theory. A tall, bulky man with a huge hawk-like nose and bushy eyebrows, Larkin was one of the most colorful figures of the Irish labor movement. From his base among Dublin dock workers, his activities as a labor leader ranged over three continents, from the British Isles to Argentina to the U.S. At that time, I had met him, spanned more than three decades, he had been a founding member of the U.S. Party, and I and was both a member of the Executive Committee of the Communist International and the Red International Labor Unions (RILU) or the Profintern. He was often in Moscow, where I saw him frequently. The Irish students came from a background in the 1916 Easter Rebellion, and the revolutionary movement reflected their lives of men like Larkin and James Connolly. Among them was Sean Murray and James Larkin Jr., Big Jim's son. All of them had been active in the post-war independence and labor struggles. I was closest to Murray, the oldest of the group, who was a roommate of mine. This was my first encounter with Irish revolutionaries and their experiences excited me. As members of oppressed nations, we had a lot in common. I was impressed by their idealism and revolutionary ardor and their implacable hatred of the British imperialist rulers, as well as for their own traitors. What impressed me most about them was their sense of national pride not of the chauvinistic variety, but of revolutionary aware of the international importance of their revolutionary of their independence struggle and the role of Irish workers. They too were a much older nation. Their fight against Britain had that time been going on for 750 years. They were fond of quoting the observation of Marx and Engels on the Irish movement, such as Marx's letter to Engels in which he said, English reaction in England had its roots in the subjugation of Ireland. Another favorite was, no nation can be free if it oppresses other nations. But most of all, they like to point out the Lenin's defense of the Easter uprising in his reply to Karl Radek, who had called the rebellion a puce and discounted the significance of the struggle of the small nations in the epoch of imperialism. Lenin admonished Radek, stating that a struggle capable of going to the links of insurrection and street fighting, a breaking down of the iron discipline of the army and martial law, on the doorstep of the imperial metropolis itself, would be a blow against imperialism more significant than in a remote colony. I was shortly to find these observations applicable to the liberation movement of U.S. blacks. As a result of my association with the Irish, I became deeply interested in the Irish question, seeing it in a number of parallels to the U.S. Blacks. In retrospect, I am certain that this interest heightened my receptivity to the idea of a Black nation in the United States. Teachers and Classes 
The teaching method at the school was a combination of lectures and discussions. About once a week, the instructor would give a lecture to the entire English-speaking group, all 25 or 30 of us. Readings would be assigned, when the and when the material was not available in English, it would be translated especially for us. I had one advantage in this regard, because by the time I could read Russian fluently. Following the lecture, the instructor would delineate a number of subtopics. Several days later, we would all get together, and one person from each group would report on its work. The instructors were often available for consultation during the time the groups were discussing and researching their topics. There were no grades given, nor were there any examinations. At the time, end of the term, we would have an evaluation sessions, where everyone met and discussed other, each other's work, including that of the teachers. It was a process of camaraderie, criticism, and self-criticism. I found the classes exciting and challenging, and the students on the whole sharp and high political level. I was under pressure to keep up. The English in general seemed to be a notch above most of us in political economy. This, I believe, was due to the existence of a large number of Labour Party schools, which were spread throughout Britain. Our instructor for a Marxist political economy was Alexandrov, an economist for the Gosplan, the state planning agency. In our class, he was often challenged on some aspect of Marxian economics. He would have sharp exchanges with one of the British students. I view it was black over differences in interpreta interpretations of Marxian economics. Marx was a perfect foil for Andronov, who seemed to enjoy these tilts and invented, invited the whole class to participate. Summing up the discussion, Alexandrov would brand a black's position as undialectical, mechanic, mechanistic, and rooted in vulgar economism and Fabianism. Black was stubborn, however, and prodded Alexandrov, kept up his critical attitude for the whole first term. It was only during our evaluations of the editor that Black conceded that some of his positions had been an error. Perhaps most prominent among my teachers was Ladislaus Rudas, a noted Hungarian Marxist philosopher and scholar. Like, like many Hungarian intellectuals, he spoke several languages fluently. He had been a leader during the short-lived Hungarian Soviet and had come to Moscow along with Belakun and other Hungarian refugees. He taught historical and dialectical materialism, and his class was one of the most interesting. It presented history, my favorite subject, but with a different context on Marxist-Leninist interpretation, portraying not just the role of individuals, but of classes. We had lengthy discussions on the French Revolution, the petty bourgeois dictatorship under Robespierre and the Jacobins, St. Just and the extreme left, the Thormidor and Napoleon, the man on the white horse, the English Revolution and Cromwell, the Leveliers, the Long Parliament, the Dutch Revolution and Prince Ingmont. We had extended discussions on the American revolutions, the Civil War of Independence, the, in the War of Independence, and the Civil War and Reconstruction. These discussions brought out our lack of knowledge on our own U.S. history. There was complete absence of materials which presented U.S. history from a Marxist standpoint. All I can remember is that, that is the so-called Marxist analyst analysis in the works of James O'Neill, The Workers of American History, and A.M. Simmons, Social Forces in American History. The former I never read, but the work by Simmons stands out in memory for its gratuitous slur on U.S. blacks. Simmons claimed that black man, the black man did not revolt against slavery during the Civil War. His inaction in a time of crisis and his failure to play a part in the struggle that broke his jackals 
told the world that he was not of those who to free themselves would strike a blow. I had read about the slave revolts in Gabriel Nat Turner, of, of Gabriel Nat Turner, and John Brown's heroic raid on Harper's Ferry with his band of whites, free blacks, and escaped slaves. I knew the role of black soldiers in the Civil War who had overcome the opposition of the Union Army in order to fight. Simmons' book skipped over all of this. I'd come across Charles and Mary Beard's The Rise of American Civilization. The Beards were economic determinists who would characterize the Civil War as the Second American Revolution. The idea seemed novel at the time, all of which points out how widespread had been the distortion of the period by U.S. bourgeois historians. My subgroup, which included Spriggy and the Irishman Sean Murray, had chosen the Civil War and Reconstruction period as our subject, with myself as the reporter. Our group had long discussions, after which we consulted Rudas, who by that time had evidently done some homework on his own on the matter. He he called our attention to the writings of Marx and Engels, their correspondence on the Civil War, and Marx's series of articles in the, in the New York Herald Tribune. After discussions, I submitted a paper to the class, which evoked considerable discussion. On the whole, it was well received by my classmates and commended by Rudas. Perhaps most interesting and stimulating about the course was on Leninism and the history of the CPSU, taught by the historian I. Mintz, a former Red Army officer. He was, at the time, assigned to work on the history of the CPSU. Mintz was a young Ukrainian Jew, a soft-spoken, mild-mannered little man. He had a way of illustrating his subject through his own personal experiences. During the Civil War and during the Revolution and Civil War in Ukraine, his appearance contrasted sharply with his role and bloody experiences in the battle for the Ukraine. His was a thrilling story involving a meteoric rise from leadership of partisans to the commander of a Red Army Brigade. They had fought against the whole array of anti-Soviet interna- interventionalist forces, the White Guardist Denikin, the Cossacks, the Cossack Hempens, Kornilov, and Kaledin, Makano's anarchists, who sometimes with and sometimes against the Red Army, General Pitflora and sundry gangs of marauders and pogromists, and the remnants of the German garrisons in the Ukraine. In connection with our studies of the Bolsheviks' agrarian policy during the Civil War, Mintz told us, told us of his involvement in the settling of the question of land redistribution in a Ukrainian district. This district had been reconquered by the Red Army, by his Red Army unit from Denikin, in the early winter of 1920. He gave us a general rundown of the agrarian situation at the time, the class forces in the countryside, their shifting alignment during the course of the revolution, and the evolution of the Bolshevik agrarian policy. Kerensky's provisional government had done nothing to solve the agrarian problem, to relieve the land hunger of the masses, a peasantry. Though Kerensky's government had promised com- confiscations of the big estates once in power, the government reneged on even that level of reform. The Bolsheviks, exhorted by the peasants to await the decision of the Constitution Assembly, thus at the time of the breakout of the revolution, the vast majority of cultivated land was still concentrated in the estates of the big landlords. The peasantry, constituting four-fifths of the population of the old Tsarist Empire, composed, was composed of three different strata. The well-to-do peasant not only owned enough land to support himself in good fashion, but also hired labor to work his land. 
This group comprised only about 4 to 5% of the total. The poor peasant was without sufficient land to support himself and his family and and his family and often hired himself out as a laborer to the landlord or well-to-do peasant. The landless peasant subsided entirely from the sale of his labor to the landlord or well-to-do peasant. Under the slogan, Land, Bread, and Peace, the Bolsheviks combined the seizure of power in the cities with the land revolution underway in the countrysides. Allied with the Soviet Social Revolutionaries, the SRs, the traditional party of the peasantry, the land was taken over in two phases. The first phase, nationalization and confiscation, was incorporated in the land decree of the All-Russian Congress of the Soviets, November 8, 1917. This stamped the seal of government endorsement on the land seizures and called for their extension. In September 1917, Lenin declared Bolshevik support for the land program of the SRs, while pointing out that only a proletarian revolution could put this program into practice. The SR program called for equal distribution of land among the peasants, while the Bolsheviks favored collective and eventually state-owned farms. But since the SR program represented the understanding of the majority of peasants, Lenin's policy was to resolve this difference by teaching the masses and, in turn, learning from the masses. The Practical Expedient Measures for Bringing About Such a Transition The day after seizing power, the Bolsheviks put this policy into practice with their November 8, 1917 decree on land, which made the SR program into law. Within three weeks, the SR's left wing, representing the poorer peasants, had split from the rest of the party and entered a coalition government with the Bolsheviks. In the following years, Lenin held to the basic position, which he stated when presenting the November 8th decree. As a democratic government, we cannot ignore the decisions of the masses of the people, even though we may disagree with it. In the fire of experience, applying the decree in practice and carrying out locally with the, with the peasants. The peasants will themselves realize where the truth lies. We w- must be guided by experience. We must allow complete freedom of the creative facilities of the masses. It was against this background that Mintz related some of his experiences in, Ukra- in the Ukraine. He told us that the party in the Ukraine had not fully grasped the lessons of the agrarian revolution in Great Russia. He spoke of the occasions... When his outfit attempted to arbitrarily carry out the collectivization of the, all the biggest states in territory occupied by their division on the Red Army, the efforts met with some stiff, stiff resistance of the local peasants, even though the peasants supported Soviet power. The peasants insisted on the redistribu- redistribution of all the estates, breaking them up among the individual peasant families, rather than taking over the large estates collectively. This occurred during the fall months of 1919, on the eve of Denikin's final defeat, when the Soviet power in the form of an independent Ukrainian republic was about to be established. It was at that time when Lenin ordered an allay to anti-Russian distrust and suspicion among the Ukrainian peasantry, had insisted that certain concessions be made. Both Russian and Ukrainian were to be used on equal footing, and attempts to push back the Ukrainian language to a secondary status were denounced. Lenin demanded that all officials in the new republic be able to speak Ukrainian and called for the distribution of large farms among the peasants. State farms would be decreed in strictly limited number of the limited and of limited size, and in each case, conformity with the instruments of the surrounding peasantry.
Despite this, Mint said many of the U.S. many of us Ukrainian Bolsheviks intended tended to downplay the nationality element in our own country. In my own case, I had long since considering myself a Jew. Most of them were what we were called at that time abstract internationalists. Super internationalists who, in the name of internationalism, renounced the national element in the struggle of the Ukrainian masses. But we were not alone in this deviation, Mintz told us. Although Lenin's policy was eventually adopted by the Central Executive Committee, it was sharply opposed by leading Ukrainian Bolsheviks such as Rakovsky and Madulinsky. What it finally came down to in the case of our army division was that as a result of the opposition of the peasants in the area, we were forced to give up our plan for collectivization. We thus had to settle for having only one of our estates be set aside as a Soviet farm. The first part of each summer at the Lenin School was spent in practical work that related to our studies. In the course of my practical work program in the early summer of 1928, I had my first close-up observation, observation of the peasant question of the USSR. I visited a peasant village in the agricultural district to talk to the people and make observations, though hardly more than a, a hundred versts, about 66, 66 miles from Moscow, it was truly in darkest Russia, a provincial place isolated from the city. Few inhabitants had been as far as Mos far away as Moscow. After taking a train to the nearest station, I then had to take a doshki, another 20 versts, to the country seat, arriving in the morning. I was let down in the middle of the village square. I looked around to get my bearings, and in no time at all, a crowd had gathered around me. The crowd grew larger and larger by the minute. It seemed as if the whole village turned out to the square. I could overhear remarks. Who is he? Why is he so black? What nice teeth? Look, his palms are white. He seems simpimachino. Simpachkno, remarks some. Someone else had probably done a little reading. Oh, he's probably from Africa. The sun there is so hot that people who lived there for thousands of years become black. The crowd seemed to accept this explanation. I stuck out to my stuck out my hand to a young man standing nearby. I said, could you direct me to the town committee? He seemed surprised that I could speak Russian, but getting himself together, he directed me to a building across the square. Who are you? Where'd you come from? The young man asked. I'm an American Negro from the United States, I replied. Some of the crowd remarked, I, I told you he was one he was of the Negro tribe. Someone else spoke up, I thought all the people in the United States were white. This gave me a chance to get off my international propaganda spiel. And I jumped right in. Oh no, I replied, there are twelve million blacks in the US, about one tenth of the population. And went on to tell them about the blacks in the South and the modern day remnants of plantation system, sharecropping, Jim Crow, and lynch terror. Someone remarked, Oh, like it was with us under the old regime. Many of the villagers nodded their head in agreement. Just then, I noticed an old woman with a cane, slowly making her way through the crowd towards where I was. The young people gave way before her in deference to her age. When she reached the center, I watched the changes in expression on her old wrinkled face as she gazed me, first in registered amazement at such a sight, then comprehension when she had cased the whole situation. Then she spit down on the cane, then she spit on the ground and slammed her cane down. It's yet to me. Go home, she told me. Wash your face. You should be ashamed of yourself, trying to fold the people around here. Waving the cane at me, she turned scornfully away. In her 90-odd years, she had never seen a black man.
10th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. The first time I met Stalin was at a social gathering, a party in the Kremlin during the, the World Congress of the Friends of the Soviet Union. The Congress coincided with the 10th anniversary celebrations in the fall of 1927. The Congress sessions were held at the Dom Zoyulsov, the House of Trade Unions. It's probably the greatest international gathering I've ever, ever witnessed. There are probably more than 1,000 delegates representing countries from six continents. The most impressive delegation was the huge one, about 100 people from China, which was headed by Zhang Chaingling, the young and beautiful widow of Sun Yat-sen. Today, she is vice president, vice chairman of the National People's Congress of the People's Republic of China. I was surprised and delighted to meet my old friend Qi, Dumping, a former Chinese student at the University of Chicago, with whom I had worked in the organization of the ill-fated interracial youth forum on the south side of 1924. He had since gone back to China and was now one of the translators for the Chinese delegation. It was Qi who introduced me to, to Madame Sun Yatsen. She spoke English with an American accent, which was not surprising since she had been educated in the United States. Among other notables, we were to meet with the young Cuban revolutionary Antonio Mella, Mella, later murdered in Mexico City by Mercado's assassins. He was a tall, wiry youth who had always been a guitar, always had a guitar slung over his back. There was Henry Barbuse, a pale wine man, a victim of tuberculosis. He was the great literary he, he was a great literary figure in France and wrote a biography of Stalin. There was a, the real American novelist. There was the American novelist Theodore Dressier, the father of American realism, who was there with his secretary, Ruth Epperson Kennell, a young American woman. A special friend of us black students was Josiah Gemunde, an elderly president of the African National Congress and descendant of, of Zulu chiefs. We took him in charge. Every morning we would call for him at his room at the National Holt hotel on Tavarska, now Gorky Street, and escorted him to the Congress sessions. We also accompanied him on the rounds of the parties held by various delegations. He must have been about 60 at the time, but was big, strong, and healthy, and never seemed to tire. The gala occasions on for the whole Congress was the evening of national culture. It consisted of the elaborate pageant of folk dances from the various Soviet republics and autonomous regions. The dancers were all in their traditional costumes, a striking array of color and diversity. On this occasion, our Soviet hosts went all out for their foreign guests. In the hall of Dom Soyosov, they had been converted into a huge banquet room. We were seated before tables loaded with various kinds of liquor, including, of course, the best vodka and zakuzkas, appetizers of all kinds. Cheese, herrings, caviar, cold sturgeon, and cold meats. Then came dinner, from soup to dessert. The banquet finally ended. Most of us were in somewhat of a stupor from the food and drink. Our group, which included which included our teacher, Sick, was leaving the hall amidst the din of thousands of people, talking and laughing. On our way out, we stopped and chatted with numerous delegates. Gemüde was the chief attraction. He had given a stirring speech at the session of the Congress a few days before. As I recall... We were nearing the door when we were stopped and greeted by the old Cossack cavalryman, Marshal Bedani. He was a short, powerful, bow-legged man with a large, ferocious black mustache. He was also in a merry mood. 
Tell the chief, he said, grasping Gamunde's hand, that we stand ready to come to support you any time he needs come to his support any time he needs us. Thank you, thank you, beamed Gamunde. At that moment, someone approached us. I believe it was Tival, Stalin's secretary, who informed us that we were invited to a party in the Kremlin. We walked a short distance across the square to the Kremlin. Once inside the walls, we were guided into one of the old palaces and then taken upstairs to a small hall. It was in a long room with an arched ceiling reaching almost to the floors on the sides. It looked to me as though it cut up in a throne room of one of the old czars. There were perhaps 50 people in this room. In the center were a large table loaded with traditional zakarusas, fruits, and drinks. It was a sort of buffet. Chairs were not directly at the table, but rather along the walls of each side. There in the center of one side was Stalin, with a number of people seated beside him. He rose, shook our hands, and after we were, after we were introduced, he welcomed us. Be our guests. He was a short, thick-set man, I remember, dressed in a neat tan suit, with a military collar, and boots shined to glistened. He, mentioned, he motioned us to sit to the vacant chairs on either side of the room. On that side were a number of folk dancers and musicians, presumably participants in the earlier festivities. Somebody introduced Gimunde as an African Zulu chief from the Congress, and the dancers probably thought we were all from the same tribe. Gimunde, however, was the center of attention, surrounded, surrounded by the dancers who insisted on being photographed with him. They gathered around him, a couple sitting on his lap and others behind him with their arms around him. Stalin, observing all this from the other side of the room, seemed amused. Later on, Stalin got up, bid us all good night, and walked out. As I remember, it was quite a relaxed evening, with no political discussion. We left shortly after Stalin's departure, and were driven home by a chauffeur from the Kremlin carpool. Another version of this occasion was given, I believe by Sik, when stated that Otto had danced with Stalin that evening. I don't doubt Sik's words, but I certainly don't remember seeing it. Otto didn't remember it either. But I, don't, I do know that in Russia, it was not uncommon for one man to dance with another on a festive occasion. As I recall, the hall became more crowded, and I was attracted by a group of folk dancers who offered to help us students with our Russian. Afterwards, Sit kept reminding Otto, Don't you remember, Otto? You asked Dolan to dance, and you danced down the hall with him several times. That was a memorable occasion. How could you forget it? As for Gamude, he returned home a firm supporter of the Soviet Union. Everywhere he went, he gave a glowing report of his visit there. In January 1928, he told the ANC rally that, I have seen the new world to come, and it has already begun. I have been to the new Jerusalem. One day in December, Otto called me and said he had just gotten a call to pick up a young black woman, Maud White, who was, was to be a student in, at Kutva. She's waiting at the station. He asked me if I'd like to go along with him, and I readily agreed. Looking forward to the pleasure of meeting this woman, the first black woman since Jane Golden to study in the Soviet Union. We went to the Droshky and proceeded to the station. It was a cold winter night. The temperature was somewhere around 35 below zero. When we got there, we saw a young black woman. She was about 19, standing in the, in the unheated station. She was strikingly pretty, brown-skinned woman with huge dark eyes. She had on a sealskin coat, silk stockings, and pumps. By the time we got there, she was practically hysterical with the cold. Get me out of here, get me out of here, she shouted. Odd looked at each other, both thinking the same thing. We're going to have a rough time with this one. We couldn't have been more wrong. Maud got, got right into the swing of things at school. She was a very, very popular student and stayed in Moscow for three years.
We later learned that she had been a school teacher before coming to Moscow. On returning to the States, she became an outstanding party cadre and a lifelong friend of mine. End of chapter 7 of Black Bolshevik. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Book Club Commune. Uh, A quick explanation. Uh, Since this is the first time I've been reading this book, there'll be some pauses and hesitations because I'm just getting lost occasionally. And sometimes there'll be like a little a little laugh for me subtly because I'm just enjoying the book as it's going. You'll notice at times when like Bella Coon shows up or when Stalin shows up, I have a particularly little little laugh about that because I know a good bit about Bella Coon and I know a good bit about Stalin. So I really enjoy the chapters when they show up. So that's just a little quick explanation of why I do that there. If you've noticed that. And if you've not noticed that, pretend I didn't. Do, I don't do that. Anyways, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Next episode, we will actually be reading Chapter 8, Self-Determination, The Fight for the Correct Line, which should be very good. As always, solidarity, and keep on reading.